Welcome to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Revolution Radio. Making smarter financial decisions with your host, Rob Nelson, former Fox News host and anchor at Roundtable Media with his team of market masters, Mark Lepresti, Managing Director of Mineta Advisory Partners, co-founder of Battlefin, leading data platform, and a former institutional equities trader at Lehman Brothers. Alex Massioli, founder of Trade the Chain, former head of institutional prime brokerage at Bquant. John Nigerian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, former co-host of Halftime Report on CNBC, and co-founder of Option Monster and Trade Monster. Daily data insights and ticker updates direct from three of the world's top TradFi legal and crypto experts on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain every Monday and Friday on all your favorite platforms. Let's get started. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome. I'm Julie Lamb, your co-host. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain, June 6th edition. I want to start right in and just jump. We have some great news here. We have some awesome guests on stage. My co-host um, right up here on stage, you're listening to Revolution Radio. I know, Michael, you're here in the room. My, uh, We're going to meet my market masters, our market masters. We've got John Najarian. He's co-founder of Market Rebels. He's a TV and streaming star, and he's an inductee into the OIC Hall of Fame. Hey, John, how's it going? Hello, I'm fabulous. I, <laughs> I love you. Listen to this. We're all in the same room. I'm Mark Lepresti, venture capitalist, venture evangelist, a market visionary, and he shares his insights on CNBC, where our guest is coming from today, Fox Business and Market Master at GitRev Radio. Mark, I think you are live here and up on stage. Welcome to the room, or you're certainly getting some Wi-Fi in the room that you're in. Are you there, Mark? All right. Well, Mark should be coming up in just a moment. Alex Maschioli, great to see you again. You are my Bitcoin Maxi guy. You're co-founder of Trade the Chain and at, at Scent Galaxy, and you're a market analyst. It's great to have you gentlemen on stage. I know that uh, Mark is getting some Wi-Fi happening here. He is connecting right now. We see him right now. Hello, Mark. I see you up on stage. Julie Lamb. Did, did, I, did I miss our fantastic intro music? You know, it's recorded. That's the best part. Um, so you yeah. can go back and listen if you want to on your own time. Mark, how are you on the other coast? I'm, I'm doing great greetings from La La Land, otherwise known as Los Angeles, a place that I sort of called home for a long, long time. Coming to you live from the LD Micro Conference at the beautiful Lux Hotel in Beverly Hills, where we are uh, speaking, uh, doing keynotes. Uh, meeting with dozens and dozens of innovative companies in a host of industries. Um, many thanks to the guys that run that show, Chris Magalino and his crew. They do an amazing job. Happy to be here and always happy to be on the left coast and, and in L.A., although we do have a terrible case of the June gloom. And uh, those of us from the B3 Nation tuning in from L.A. know exactly what I'm talking about. It's overcast. It's cold by L.A. standards. It's 56 degrees. Everybody's freezing, putting on, you know, faux fur coats and, and freaking out. But uh, always happy to be out here. Well, Mark, you know, we get to warm our bones right here inside the Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain's Twitter spaces because our guest today is Tom Lee. He's that mind behind Bundstrat. Uh, 
and he's gracing us here at Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain. So make sure you get your questions ready, um, and because I know we have him coming up at about 5.45, so let's just jump right into Oh my God, it's, you know, I heard Tom Lee was joining us today. He's really hard to get, that guy. Um, he's, he's everywhere. You can't put on CNBC or any other financial news network without seeing him. If you think John and I are on TV a lot, uh, Rob, uh, uh, the, excuse me, Tom, uh, makes it look like he doesn't sleep and he's always on television. So pleased to have him. Just want to say real quickly, shout out to our top of show sponsor. Uh, some of the B3 Nation will remember this name. This is a company that is innovating in the fintech space, in the uh, unbanked and underbanked space. I'm talking, of course, about uh, Quintus, their website, www.cuentas, quintus.com. And today, Quintus announced the continued expansion of their business model into affordable housing and real estate with the announcement of the acquisition of a almost 30-acre property in Ocala, Florida. If you go to their website, you can see the, the press release. I think uh, the production team should also be uh, posting or pinning, I should say, that press release to the top. Um, so congrats to the boys over at Quintus. Always happy to see their progress. Um, and yeah, so ready to get the get the show started with our, what are we doing next, Julie? TradFi Market Overview, I think. We do. We have TradFi Market Overview with you, Mark. And I know you're so busy to actually do our traffic overview while you're on the other coast. And we have Tom on stage. It almost seems blasphemous. It's, well, you know, it's it's blasphemous for me to try to do any kind of market view with with the uh, or market overview with Tom Lee on stage. But I know that I'm going to be helped by the great John, Dr. Jane Jerry, who's also out here with me. Um, so listen, uh, a, a muted day. Uh, yesterday on Monday, uh, today, the S&P doing a little better, advancing modestly to the highest close it's had since 2023 as Wall Street digested a rally that led the broad index to the highest level in nine months. The S&P adding just under 25 basis points. NASDAQ composite climbing just under 40 basis points to close the day at 13,276. Spot 42, the Dow Jones eking out a narrow gain of just 0.03%. Uh, losses in Merrick and United Health weighing in the blue chip. We did have some economic information. We are, of course, in that uh, a two-week quiet period from the Fed, so we are mercifully spared from commentary from the uh, various uh, Fed governors um, and, and Fed uh, officials about what is going to come up at the next FOMC meeting, Jul uh, June 13, and, of course, the big day, June 14th. But we did have a PMI uh, out yesterday coming in just under expectations at 54 spot three uh, versus the street's expectation of 54 spot five. Service index also came in yesterday, uh, missed slightly. Street looking for 55 spot one came in 54 spot nine. Perhaps more importantly, on the inflation front, we had the ISM. We talked about that on Sunday, that those numbers were coming in. That was down, coming in at 50 spot three versus 51 spot nine and the consensus estimate of 52 spot zero. Um, concern a little bit about the leadership in the bulls uh, remaining exceptionally narrow. Top seven stocks accounting for just about all of the S&P 500's gains on a year-to-date basis. That is not stopping investors from plying into stocks. Equity funds were their biggest inflows of the year in the past five trading days particularly benefiting tech funds. Um, we're also seeing some optimism reflected in call option market volume there, 
reaching the sixth highest on record with, not surprisingly, technology call options nearing levels not seen since the post-pandemic boom. That's what I have in the Tradfire review. I know Dr. J has a few names that he was following today. One of them is not going to be a surprise to anybody in the audience. John, what were you watching today? Well, Mark, and thank you for that. Um, I was doing a lot in uh, Coinbase, but I guess we can talk about that in just a bit. But uh, I, I thought that the Sienna uh, move was pretty interesting and probably brought that stock down to a level that uh, certainly made it interesting to my brother Pete and I, Mark, because uh, Sienna, who helps video and uh, audio like this move across uh, spaces, that one is, uh, you know, was just getting cranked today. And that's because they said going forward, they lowered guidance for their midterm and further term outlooks. And uh, the market rewarded them as it usually does when you lower guidance. Not that you shouldn't. If, if the guidance is too high and you need to adjust it, you really should adjust it. And they did and paid about a 12% penalty for that. Well, you know, gentlemen, we could sit here, we can talk some details all day about the market. What I'm most excited about on stage, besides being able to share it with uh, you gentlemen up here as our market masters, we have Tom Lee here on stage. I'd like to bring him up. You know, for our audience, this is really quite a treat. Being an American entrepreneur, a financial analyst, strategist, investor, businessman, and a full-time contributor at CNBC, Fast Money, Tech Check, and Halftime Report and Closing Bell Shows. Welcome, Tom Lee, to the show, Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain. Thanks for having me, everyone. I guess I'm in the same time zone as Mark. I'm out on the left coast as well. Oh, my God. By the way, Julie, you left out that he's a hell of a dancer, too, by the way. Tom's like a triple threat. I think that's how far you wanted me to go down into the triple threat category. I thought we were just staying in the traditional finance world. But if you'd like to get into the entertainment world, that's for another show, I think. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so, Tom, thanks for thanks for joining us. Um, I got I got to ask you, of course, I, we do want you to comment on the Coinbase and Binance madness from our friend Gigi. That, that's what I how I refer to Gary Gensler these days. Um, what do you think Friday's red hot job numbers and the macro numbers that we got yesterday and today, any impact whatsoever, or are we looking at a hawkish pause on the 14th? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, you know, sometimes market price and the reaction tells us really how the market's ingesting the data. And as you know, on Friday, we had a huge upside move in markets with pretty big expansion of breadth. So I don't think equity markets viewed the hot jobs number as actually hawkish. I think it, I, I actually think people focused on the fact that wage growth was slowing and the household survey showed self-employed people basically tanking is a sign that inflationary pressures from wages, which is like the Fed's sort of red hot question, um, is cooling. And I think this week we got a lot more evidence supporting the idea that inflationary pressures are easing. I mean, you know, the Liberty Street Economics published, uh, this New York Fed sort of research team published a piece showing that what they call persistent inflation is absolutely tanking. Now it's like three and a half percent. And there's another uh, report where some of the Fed think tank people are suggesting the Fed will change how they target that 2% may actually be sort of cast aside and they might widen the band. 
And of course, the isms, the services prices paid tanked and you know that leads CPI by like six months. So I, I think inflationary pressures are really diminishing. And so I think the case is strengthened that we got a really dovish June pause coming. So, so a pause, but a dovish pause, not the hawkish pause that I was – my thought was, and I share this with our B3 Nation guests on our Sunday show, that I thought that uh, Jay Powell would pause. He'd explicitly adopt the pause as opposed to disavowing the pause that he did at the last meeting, but leave the door open hawkishly for additional hikes this year, reducing the possibility that we would actually see cuts before the end of the year as Dr. Jay has been prognosticating. Uh, well, I'm not a Fed, uh, I don't know, I'm not a good Fed watcher, Mark, but to me, I think there's a couple of key questions I'm worried about as we get into the June FOMC, but one of them is, you know, is the Fed okay with equity markets at August highs and FANG stocks are, you know, driving 50% gains? And uh, I'm actually comfortable with the idea of saying yes, because- the one thing they don't want is an unraveling of financial stability. And, you know, I think there's a tenuous uh, stability forming in the banking system, you know, and that's why the regional banks are kind of catching a bit, and that's the temporary Fed put. But, I mean, these FANG stocks are solving inflation and wage problems, and they're helping contribute to a slowdown in hiring, which is exactly what the Fed wants. I mean, if the FANG stocks tanked this year, I think the Fed would be cutting rates, uh, you know, because it would unravel so much of the stability of the financial system. So I think the Fed's okay with equities here. And I'm kind of in your camp. Like, look, it, it's so easy for the Fed to say something hawkish and maybe mis misunderstood and the stocks could fall. But if inflationary pressures are easing, and I think there's a lot more white papers coming out suggesting either they change the bogey or uh, leading indicators are slowing or wages are slowing and we get a June CPI that I'm kind of in the camp now that it's probably dovish pause. And are you at all concerned about, I mean, look, we're, we're already in a ridiculous, in my opinion, particularly from the view of the venture space and the, and the earlier stage companies that we spent a lot of time focusing on. But, you know, I was looking at this news about these proposals, right, calling for banks with over $100 billion in assets to increase their overall capital requirements by like 20% or more, right? The, the theory, of course, putting additional backstop, backstop's the wrong way of putting it, the additional foundational stability to these larger banks. But the banks are just going to pass that cost along to consumers and the businesses they lend to and cause a further contraction in credit. How, how, can, that be a, how can that be a good thing from the perspective of seeing you know, this this soft landing that it would seem to indicate you, you think is a possibility from the comments that you've made so far? Uh, well, I mean, you know, I mean, I think all your statements are the reason why the Fed doesn't feel the urgency because they already know that private markets and, you know, lending markets are already doing a lot of the hiking for them. I mean, many Fed governors have pointed this out. And um, as you know, I mean, the stock market, isn't blind to these things. I mean, I just think what people forget is the stock market also discounts a lot of things. So, I mean, one thing to be mindful of is the market fell 27% last year when the Fed went on, embarked on this massive hiking campaign. And 
and earnings were actually up. So it's it's like we fell because they were our, the market was discounting a lot of the stuff that is already playing out now. And I do think it's a bit cavalier for people to say because they know there's more problems coming, the stock market has to fall more. I'm just going to say from my personal experience, because in 09, I was at JP Morgan. And remember, the key there was the housing crisis. Without naming people, we had uh, fixed income research heads telling us adamantly they knew how many shadow homes were in inventory. These were going to be flooding the market, so housing wasn't going to recover. Therefore, the economy was going to go into a, a second dip. And we had economists telling us that there was no way there'd be any recovery in the housing market. Therefore, we would be stuck in a almost a decade of stagnation. And yet the S&P bottomed on March 9th, 2009. I mean, just remember, markets climb a wall of worry. Uh, I can't, I mean, you guys go on your Twitter feed. Uh, what is it, 99.99999% of all the tweets are negative? I, I have people trying to school me on like, don't I understand that uh, business, how business cycles work? I, I mean, I went to Wharton. I'm not blind to the business cycle. But at the same time, when 99.999% of my, the 200, whatever, 60,000 people that uh, are my Twitter profile tell me that we're going to crash, I, I almost think you got to take the other side of that trade. Uh, by the way, Tom, I, I still, speaking of Wharton, um, and, and my only connection to the school is I have your, uh, notwithstanding the fact that I do the Wharton Business Daily Show on SiriusXM, I still have your brick charger you gave me in New Orleans last year with the Wharton logo on it. So remind me to give that to you the next time I see you. <laughs> yes. Is that, that's my only connection to my old school. Well, I'm sure that there's others as, as well. Um, and, and last question, and I'll turn it back to Julie. Um, but, but we get to do this so infrequently with you, and, and, and hopefully the, our B3 Nation listeners are finding it as thrilling and exciting as, as I do. Um, with the sort of that corollary to the JP Morgan days and, and real estate, you know, we had some pretty horrendous news today in the mortgage front as it relates to mortgage bonds tied to offices. Vacancy rates in office space in the U.S. hit a record, you know, low, um, 16% uh, nationally. Places like here in Los Angeles, where I'm reporting from, 30% uh, plus uh, vacant. Commercial real estate landlords have about 1.2, 1.5, I think, trillion dollars in commercial mortgages coming due over the next three years. Is this not setting up for the other the other so-called shooter drop as it relates to stress and pressure on the banks where we're going to have this commercial real estate? It seems inevitable to me, Tom, that we're going to have this washout in the commercial real estate in the CRE market. Oh, man, Mark. I mean, commercial real estate's in rough shape. I mean, one, uh, as you know, there was probably a belief in the past that it was a pretty bulletproof category, and that's why, like, the Black Rocks and the others were able to raise huge public funds um, in the space. So I think there is a bit of that, you know, the the bloom coming off the rose and work from home. And like, as you know, as you're pointing out, like some cities have just gotten totally transformed by like, I, I mean, I guess I have to say lack of law and order plus work from home. And, and, you know, there was a story about how Juan Reed is turning in the keys for a hotel in San Francisco, Hilton, at Union Square. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's misery. Um, 
I think the good news is the loan to value on a lot of these things is low. I mean, you know, the Hilton property in Union Square, the loan to value is like 50%. So like the chances of the bank taking a loss, I mean, they're going to be some loss, but it's not anything like GFC when the loan to value was 99 or 100 uh, or there was zero down payment properties. These are all highly collateralized. Uh, but aren't like 90% and, of them interest only? I mean, which by the way, for our listeners, that means essentially that these borrowers, these commercial real estate borrowers pay just the interest during the life of the loan. And then they have a balloon that they expect to refi at the end. That refi market is sure. not there or the rates are exorbitant. I, I mean, I don't, I don't yeah, see how this but, isn't like a disaster in the works. Well, I mean, you know, as you know, an amortizing mortgage, let's say that everyone was doing a 30-year payment schedule, but they refinance every seven. After seven years, you only pay down 10% of principal. So, I mean, interest only isn't changing really the calculus around loan-to-value that much. I mean, I think that's an exaggerated headline when people say, like, interest only. Because, I mean, look at anyone who has a 30-year mortgage when they initiate it. The first year, I think it's 1% of your payments is amortization. It's tiny. Um, so, it, you know, of course, the amortization component grows as you get towards, because your payments are fixed, as you get towards the end of the life. But everyone refinances after seven years. Um, I mean, to me, it's really going to be uh, zoning and creativity because, as you know, a lot of hotels, like, you can't turn a commercial building into a hotel because you don't have enough plumbing. You can't turn it into a residential because you don't have enough parking. I mean, these are to me innovations that are coming. Like, if if I was like if I was fresh money venture into commercial real estate, I'm not doing anything right now. But I would be realizing this is like the fattest pitch out there. Like in distress, you could turn something into. You could really change the complexion of a city when you got people turning in the keys to a hotel. I mean, that's all I would say. It's. It, I think it's 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 scary stuff. Um, and when, and when you look at places like San Francisco, you look at places like even New York. I mean, friends that own restaurants uh, in New York, like they have no Monday and Friday crowd, and they don't even have a Thursday night crowd anymore because everybody bugs out on Thursday as if it was Friday. Forget about now in the summer, right? Like the like the run to the Hamptons is now going to start on Wednesday night. That no no longer on on Friday night, which is probably good for traffic. But this is just an indication of, of how decimated uh, things have, have become. Uh, Tom's thoughts on what's going on with our friend Gary Gensler before, before yeah. we lose Tom Lee. What do you yeah. think, Julie? Yeah, absolutely. Come on, you're poser. Gary Gensler what? a poser. <laughs> Good question. Uh, okay, well, you know, I would say. Everything that the SEC and the actions they've taken today are pretty widely expected. Because um, I don't think Gary was trying to, I don't think the SEC was trying to surprise anybody. They've been making very clear their position and the players they thought were uh, not necessarily being compliant or trying to play by the rules. And uh, so to me, what we see as headlines today and the actions taken against some of the companies, I mean, this is, as you know, a continuation of Operation Choke Point. I'm not surprised. Uh, I think these were, you know, well telegraphed. Is Gary knowledgeable about the digital asset space in crypto? Absolutely. I mean, he he knows the space well. Uh, I did have a chance to meet him briefly when he was at MIT. 
and he he know he he knows the space cold. Is Coinbase being treated fairly? Uh, that's going to be determined in the process of litigation. Um, you know, in my opinion, is Coinbase one of the better actors in the space? Yes, but you know, I I don't know exactly all the things. There were a lot of allegations in that filing and that um, document that are surprising and then you just sort of need the the legal process to sort out um but do i think this kills bitcoin now i mean i just think this is going to make the use case for bitcoin stronger and you know and gary even in his many statements talked about these uh basically special purpose broker dealers like prometheum and and how they're compliant entities i mean i guess this is just telling us where things are going right i mean at the end of the day the crypto space as much as they thought it was decentralized, it's going to end up being centralized and compliant in KYC for a lot of it, at least in the U.S. But so, so, but Tom, so I'm, I'm, I'll say a couple of controversial things, and then I'll, or well, maybe not controversial to me, but I'll also start off by it's unfair to put Tom on the spot about Gary being a poser. Tom is works within a regulated entity that's overseen by the SEC, so we certainly don't want to put you in a bad position, um, but. You know, I have a really, really hard time, particularly with what's going on with Coinbase. I have a really hard time with the SEC's just complete failure to offer anything in terms of meaningful guidance and regulation. I think this has been regulation through enforcement, regulation through very aggressive enforcement. And the costs here, I'm less concerned about the, the you know maybe putting the industry here in the United States a couple of steps back because I think we're already pregnant with that it's it's the destruction of investor wealth that I have a problem with right it's it's you know who owns coinbase it's it's not just you know the rich Wall Street fat cats I mean coinbase is in I don't know God knows how many you know pension fund portfolios this is Main Street getting hurt and this is a company that went through the registration process, has filed their Ks and Qs on a timely basis, has disclosed their business model, gone through God knows how many layers of SEC review at every point in time that they filed a new registration statement or with their initial filing. To wait this long, and if it was just about staking, I'd be less upset, but it's not. How do you do that to a public registrant? With, with what seems to me to be a wanton disregard for who really is getting hurt when we see and, – and if somebody has a quote in terms of how much value was wiped out today in Coinbase stock alone, please DM us. Let me know. I don't have that statistic offhand. But that pisses me off, and I think it should upset everybody. <laughs> Do you want to get Alex Massioli? And I know, Alex, you've been waiting patiently and quietly. Um, what's yeah, going on? Yeah, he's been chomping at the bit. Oh, I've been seething. <laughs> well, can you do like the crypto market update without getting into the Gary Gensler the story? Because that is going to be like the entire crypto block. You're testing me. I get it. I get it. <laughs> because I have so much to say. <laughs> All right. Listen, uh, folks, everybody knows uh, we got a one-two punch. They, uh, you know, the Coinbase and the Binance lawsuits and then uh, ended by another other finance uh, piece of news coming out of the SEC, but crypto token cap up to 1.13 trillion, just under 4% today, uh, off from the SEC on Binance point base, which killed 200 billion 
out of the market. Uh, but crypto resilience is showing its force and 43 billion in trading volume. So we're, you know, double what uh, Sunday show was. Side note, coin uh, was down as much as nearly 20% this morning when the equity markets opened on the SEC lawsuit news. Bitcoin bouncing just above 27K with about a 5.4% pop performing, outperforming the top 20 cryptos with the exception of Dogecoin, which showed a 6.5% gain. Uh, I have to tell you, crypto bounces back hard after bad news. It really does. And and I give the resilience uh, trade to it. Uh, trade the chain. Hey, DC Alex. Sentiment. Yes, sir. What, what, what in the heck? I mean, that's a heck of a bounce. You need to tell people what the bottom was in the last 24 hours. Because I saw Bitcoin below twenty six thousand this morning. It was it was in the twenty five uh, it was in the twenty five range. I mean, if you look at the charts, if everything in crypto pretty much mirrored what the uh, Coinbase chart looked like in equities, it was a bloodbath this morning. Um, but it popped, and I got to tell you, crypto does this in unpass. Uh, and and you know the the praise by the dips it really more often than not will benefit you. Uh, when it comes to this, and quite frankly, you know, people are getting tired of the poser. So uh, when the sell-offs begin, um, the Bitcoin narrative becomes the rally. Uh, but, you know, Bitcoin sentiment, it's up to 62 out of 100. Haven't seen this in about three weeks. Uh, and what is more spectacular than that, 21.3 billion changed hands today, uh, which is about 55% uh, part of trading volume versus average. So, I mean, we've been calling for volatility. We just didn't want it to come in this form this way. Uh, Ethereum climbed 4%, and its sentiment score has risen to 77 out of 100 in the very bullish range. Trading volume here followed a very similar suit to BTC, up 44% to $8.6 billion. So we're basically over double of what I was reporting on during the Sunday show. And I'm going to quickly mute before I go on a Gary the Poser tirade. Alex, we, I we don't to... want that. We don't want that. You guys, I wanted to throw something out there really quickly. I wanted to thank our guest, Tom Lee. He got rugged at the last minute from Elon. We're going to blame it on you. Um, if you want to follow Tom Lee, not the drummer, make sure you uh, do follow him. He is the mind behind Fund Strat. You can find that on Twitter. It's also within our scope. Um, you can always find us on Twitter on Revolution. Get Rev Radio, and that's how you're going to be able to find our guests. So thank you so much, Tom, for coming up. If you are in a good area, you want to come back up, we'd love to welcome you back to the stage or at another time and uh, want to get back to the show. Pardon me, Alex, for interrupting you. Uh, hey, Julie, I wanted to hop in here and just kind of follow up with Alex and talking about why uh, we saw such crazy volatility at the lows around 25.5. And um, I, obviously, there's no one single answer or single entity that you can point to to be like, this is why Bitcoin is rising. But I did find it fascinating that, you know, the narrative a lot of times when news is focused, let's say on Binance and price snaps back, the, the crypto Twitter narrative or the general consensus narrative is typically, well, Binance is pumping the price to, you know, to kind of stick it to, to Gary Gensler or the SEC or whatever. And although Binance was definitely a heavy buyer throughout this rally, um, a lot of the buying was very much from both Binance and Coinbase. Um, we did see a lot of buying from uh, Bitfinex and Bybit as well. So very coordinated uh, large exchange buying, no single exchange really taking over market share in terms of clicking that green button today. Um, but I did find it interesting that both Binance
Binance and Coinbase were very, very heavy on the buy side today uh, compared to the other top exchanges. And and I, I will mention, even though they were the two top exchanges in the buyer's world here, um, Binance did see uh, nearly $3 billion in outflows uh, after the SEC news. Uh, which was, uh, you know, par for the norm. We expected that. Um, one other little tidbit I want to throw in here, and I know Mark and John love to talk about uh, Coinbase stickers, C-O-I-N. Um, there, it's come out that uh, someone opened a coin $50 weekly puts for $107,000. Uh, this is in John's territory. They were 19% out of the money and expired in four days. Uh, well, Today, the SEC suit in Coinbase, those positions are up nearly 2,572%. Whoever that was turned $100,000 into millions. You know, you know how you can turn things into millions. Make sure you follow us at Get Rev Radio and share this room. It'll bring you good luck. You're going to meet new friends, learn some, <laughs> learn some techniques, right? And we have three shows a week on Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday at 530 followed by Beyond B3 at 6.30, where we have a special host tonight, Josh Carey, one of my favorite people from iHeartRadio. That's where you as the audience get to come up on stage and ask questions, or you can drop your questions in the DMs if you happen to be a little shy. Remember, follow us on Get Rev Radio, and make sure you treat out our room. Hey, Julie. Julie. What, go again, what, uh, Thanks, Mark and Julie. Um, just to echo what Alex was talking about, we put out one of our logos which is the buy one get one free video today on that exact coinbase trade that alex was describing because yesterday they paid 19 cents on average for all those calls that they are puts rather that they bought at the 50 strike that expire this coming friday the 9th of june well those puts went from 19 cents 18 and 19 cents actually to $5.60. So if you put your little calculator to it, guys, it's better than 20X on that trade. And uh, if you go to marketrebellion.com forward slash bang, <laughs> you can still pick up one of those BOGOs that buy one, get one free. We promote it whenever we see a big trade that's like 5X, 10X, 20X. Uh, and that certainly was one. And I hope, Alex, you had some of those puts. Uh, I did not, John. I will admit. I'm sorry. But it was put. In, Are you I, turning into Gary Gensler? I, I am not. into a poser? I, I am not. And I will say that uh, when John starts talking, uh, puts and calls, you better be listening because that's all alpha right there. Yeah, it's 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 definitely it's all about the power of options, and there's nobody that does it better than John and his team over at Market Rebellion. Another shout out: John and I will be heading from this incredible LD Micro Conference uh, tomorrow, late in the afternoon, to the VIP Trading Conference that Market Rebellion is putting on in beautiful Napa, California, where the top uh, traders, the, the the best of the best in the Market Rebellion family, uh, come together for three days to trade live with Pete and John, learn all of the uh, best tips and tactics you can possibly learn in, in two days. Unbelievable food, unbelievable location. I don't think there's any tickets left, but they do this a few times a year. If you have any interest, you can find more information on joining the next VIP trading sector, VIP trading conference at marketrebellion.com. Right, John? Yeah, and, and Mark and I will be flying up there 
on one of the sometimes sponsors of this program, Verijet. That's V-E-R-I-J. Uh, Verijet, nice enough to uh, send the jet down here from our guy to uh, go from Santa Monica Airport up to Sonoma uh, without having to put up with all the hassles at the airport. <laughs> so we're really looking forward to that. We'll put up some video for you, Julie, just to make you jealous. Listen, there's, there, you, you guys can't make me jealous. I feel like I'm with you everywhere. I'm, you're here on Get Red Radio. I get to talk to you guys in social media, and I get to see you in real life so many times. So I want you, you gentlemen, to always have a good time while you're out there and share your pictures. It makes us feel like we're on the journey with you. I see a few of our friends in the audience. I know Rob um, uh, was, uh, he was down there for a hot minute. I do see you, Rob. Um, we're going to be able to bring you up soon. And Jenny, I see you, QTA. I see you down there. We're going to bring you up certainly in the minute. I want to remind everybody that after our uh, our Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain here at 630, we invite everybody to stay in the room for Beyond B3. We have Josh Carey as our host coming over from iHeartRadio. So we do see you down there. I also like to remind folks, follow us, follow your co-hosts up here on the stage, our speakers on stage, and tweet out this room so we can keep this community Clear, clean, fun, and interesting. By the way, you know, just talking about some trad, but um, I, I see that some banks have been on a wild ride this year and credit markets are tight. Um, what I'm hearing, are there some proposals in the works that could make things worse? Uh, John, Mark, Alex, how is this possible? Well, Julie, oh, they're, they're asking. Go ahead, John. No, you go ahead. I I heard 10, or 10 one thousandths of a second break there. By the way, folks, make sure you follow Julie at how to... That's the, the the number two, how to with Julie, J-U-L-I-E, Sue, S-U, how to with Julie Sue, uh, who's doing a fabulous job hosting it. Uh, so, Mark, she is. Me how is this possible? And it's so, so, yeah, Joel. No, thank you so much for John for saying to follow me. I think we're all part of this big community together. I Really, this is a burning question that I have. You know, would this make things worse? And how is it possible, Mark? Well, so this is actually something that Tom Lee and I were talking about earlier, right? And and there was news today that um, the, the regulators are proposing that the banks, and it's only banks with over $100 million, a billion, excuse me, in assets, so it's really only the, the, the top larger banks, increase their overall capital requirements by about 20%. That is a very big number. Now, why is this controversial, or why do I think that it's controversial? Because most would say, at least at first blush, well, this is good news, right? We need to increase the strength of the banking sector. We went through all this horrible turmoil. We thought for a while there that we were going through a, a, a banking crisis. You know, a la the last one that we went we went through, which which you know caused a lot of pain and a lot of losses. But what we have though is for markets to operate efficiently, for American businesses to operate efficiently, for American consumers to operate efficiently, they need access to credit. And they need access to credit at terms that are affordable and terms that are reasonable. And what this will do is will cause, will cause, excuse me, further contraction in what is already a very, very tight credit market. And what banks tend to do, unfortunately, is pass those added costs of having that additional, that additional cushion that means cannot, by the way, duplicate, lend, do all those things. They make less money on those assets at 20% range. They wind up passing those costs along to their consumers and their clients on the corporate side. 
which typically means even less credit. The credit that's available is more costly, and that is to overall, uh, uh, you know, put the brake on any sort of economic growth. And trying to come out of this recession, and we are in one, um, by the way, as I've said many times before, we're trying to have a soft landing here. Further restricting access to credit on reasonable terms is not a good thing. I mean, and I see Rob Nunn in the audience, by the way, who would typically give a counterpoint to that or agree with me, which is also fine. So I don't know if we want to give Rob the microphone. Also, also you got to remember, Julie, you know, to, to Mark's point, uh, rehypothecation is good until it isn't, right? Um, and that's when all the trouble starts. And uh, we just went through, you know, a, a regional banking crisis, uh, you know, so credit tightened extremely well on the on the consumer end. Also, Tom Lee was talking about, you know, housing and mortgage with Mark. Um, you know, recent report came out that uh, uh, literally just over 80% of Americans who have uh, fixed mortgages have them at the 5% mark. Uh, and when new mortgages are at 7%, let's say, let's take the housing market. They, they don't want to, they're not going to sell their house, right? You know, so we're going to have an inventory crunch on that because it's going to take people uh, 7% in order to borrow for the, the next house. Um, and also we have the whole rent versus own chart, which just came out a couple of weeks ago, which is showing, you know, it, it's, it's more beautiful to rent than it is to buy because of uh, credit, because of the credit uh, restriction. So I think credit on a whole for consumers is just uh, in a bad place right now. And then Mark pointed out the other day on the show, one over 1 trillion for the first time in credit card debt. Yeah, and and Rob, you know, and I'm, then I'm gonna. I, I do want uh, Rob Nunn to speak. You, you call bring up a really Rob. good point. Well, no, I was I was I was gonna go to Rob Nunn, but but I want to just comment on. You made an excellent point that I actually did not include in my rant on this subject, and that is the impact on the mortgage market and the impact on the real estate market. We have the lowest rate of turnover of existing homes in like 20 something years inventory is at record lows we've got a housing crisis on our hands making it worse makes no sense rob Nunn, agree or disagree i broadly agree actually with that um you've got you've got interest rate trap really haven't you in the sense that lots of people would have been locked in for 10 15 20 years on their mortgages at much much lower rates and so to move has to be attractive both from property valuations, which are still stubbornly high, and although they are coming down in, in areas, but certain markets really aren't moving at all. And to move requires you to up your mortgage exposure because you're not going to be able to port that mortgage over because they're not going to offer that to you. So, you know, there are lots of people who probably would want to move. Um, some people who probably need to move from a financial perspective uh, are kind of trapped because if they do move, they, they're going to go for less property and the same mortgage costs. So I do broadly agree with that. You've got huge stubbornness in the market. And then you've got new uh, new builds are just, you know, it just depends on the market. I mean, I was looking at Austin numbers um, yesterday and something like 17,000 units coming online this year that, that don't have anybody to purchase them um, so they're going to go into rentals and then you look at rental take up for those units i mean it's like a third so um i just don't know where all these people what what, what these companies going to do and they're going to sit there and with assets that are you know highly indebted probably on variable rates at that point from a construction loan standpoint 
Like that, it's messy, really, really messy. And then other parts of the country, no, no, no new inventory at all. Stubborn market um, valuations are teetering. You've got a real, uh, con- you know, in some of these middle markets, you've got some real concern for negative equity because these LTV loans, uh, loan to value ratios were were crazy. Uh, in the UK, where I am, uh, we've now got banks offering a hundred percent LTV loans, uh, which is a recipe for disaster, isn't it? So, I, I agree with you. Uh, Rob, you know, I'm, I'm going to jump in here for a second. I happen to be pretty heavy-handed when it comes to Austin and um, the real estate there. And I will tell you, some people might say the numbers have uh, slightly slowed or changed. Uh, things do not stay on the market for very long there, especially if you're close to the center of town. And when it comes to the rental market, it is booming in Austin. So, you know, the idea of something possibly slowing, I mean, it was so crazy hot. For the longest time, you know, it's interesting here in New York City, we definitely see, uh, you know, empty commercial, um, you know, spaces. And I would like to see New York be able to reconfigure the thinking of maybe work live type spaces. But uh, I would like to, you know, point out that Austin is maybe not as people have been uh, hypothesizing because I'm boots on the ground there and, and I don't see well, it's the same to you. I rent, I rent um, four properties out for, for staff there. I mean, you are right. I'm just saying, you know, as things stand today, this, you know, the ne- as things stand today, you're correct. Next 24 months, though, the number of units coming online versus demand is they're starting those numbers start to wane. So be interesting to see what happens. That, that might be a specialty case, and that's kind of my point. But bro- broadly speaking, the, the US market's either in really specialty stubborn markets where there's no inventory at all, or way too much, and you're now seeing teetering. And, and bizarrely, that's happening in cities like New York and San Francisco, which hasn't happened previously. So that's just interesting to see how the market react to that. Yeah. Yeah, um, very interesting to watch and keep Ryan. So you guys, it's official, no need for crypto. As Gensler declares that the dollar, yen, and euro are actually digital currencies. I mean, who knew? Who knew? I, I wanted you know, to just, say earlier to you, you know, the, you know that person made 2,000% plus on a trade. I just really wanted to shout, is it Pelosi? <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Rob, I was going to say the same thing. If, if, yeah. if I find out it was Pelosi who uh, who did the uh, coin uh, options, I will be very upset. Well, and it very well might be, but it would have been a member of Gary's staff or Gary um, that did it or, you know, that passed that information along, right? Because I don't think they counsel with uh, Congress before they charge somebody like that. Um so well, it very well could have been Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, or any of those usual. Well, suspects. listen, you don't, you, you guys, come on, that's hype. That's that's just hypothesis here. So let's just stay pretty focused on the facts and say, <laughs> I, at least right now, when you look, you know, Gary Gensler took an ill-informed and perhaps maybe in somebody's view inaccurate and bizarre swing at cryptocurrency this morning, implying that they're essentially unnecessary in today's world. Okay, we can think about this. In quotes, he said, look, we don't need more digital currency. And during this, Gensler said, this was on his appearance at CNBC's Squawk on the Street. We already have digital currency. It's called the US dollar. It's called the euro. It's called the yen. They're all digital right now. We already have digital investments. So, gentlemen, I know that we're coming up on a C block that's um, that we, we had. We skipped the C block because Tom Lee was able to come at the top part of the hour. And we certainly want to thank him for being the mind behind Fund Strat. And he was able to grace Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain, which you can always play on Rewind because we're recording this space. 
The space is around three days a week, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays at 5.30, followed at 6.30 by Beyond B3 with today's host, Josh Carey, and a myriad of others. But I do want to get back, you guys. You know, I mean, is the U.S. setting up for CBDCs? Is that what this play is? Oh, Julia, I, I tend to be in the camp, and, and I don't want to hog the microphone as I'm prone to do, but but I tend to be in the camp, you know, that the U.S. is laying the groundwork for a CBDC. I, I don't think that they're being terribly secretive about that fact. And look, you, you got to ask, I tend to not be conspiratorial, um, but there's certainly been a lot of chatter on, on Twitter, surprisingly, as well as elsewhere, that, you know, what, what was... Uh, operation chokehold to what I think is now with the Binance and Coinbase uh, enforcement actions uh, should be called Operation Death Blow, to reference, of course, to one of my favorite Seinfeld episodes, um, that, that it, it does set up nicely for a CBDC, right? And and look, I also do want to say, in, in fairness, there is a big difference between Binance and, and uh, Coinbase. I, I've been concerned for a while, I've voiced opinions on this show and others about where I think Binance has had um, some rather significant uh, regulatory failures and, and perhaps were operating some parts of the business, if not a lot of parts of the business, outside of regulation to which they are uh, currently subject. I, I think the Coinbase situation is far more controversial for the reasons that I said earlier when I was sort of goading Tom Lee into you know, joining a, a t- taking perhaps a more aggressive uh, a stance or opinion on on what's going on here, but to jump on the pirate ship, yeah, go, that's what, go, go, go. We wanted him to jump on the pirate ship and call that hack a poser, but he wouldn't do it. <laughs> His business depends on it, and so I don't blame him. I do not blame him for that. But you know, clearly, Mark, just as you've said, this guy is uh, basically a dictator. And he is not, uh, uh, you know, basically ferreting out these uh, fines and these lawsuits through his enforcement division rather than answering questions, which he refuses to answer. He absolutely refuses in front of Congress. Yeah, he tries to get Congress to say, I shouldn't have to answer these questions. Why the hell not, poser? Well, well, you know, a, a quick shout out, a quick shout out, Alex, and I'll, I'll let you pick up from here um, to our friend Matt Sermonaro from Funstrat, who actually responded to my call to action and came up with the number. And this, again, is what pisses me off. Regulators got to regulate. I get that. I do not want unregulated Wild West markets. I've seen what happens too many times when I was you know, practicing law and dealing with Madoffs and things of that of that nature. And I dealt with a lot of it on behalf of clients, both large and small. But Matt from Funstrat coming in with the number $1.664 billion was wiped from Coinbase's market cap today. Who lost that money, right? Was it was it the evil Wall Street fat cats? Yeah, I'm sure some Wall Street fat cats lost that money. But we did. Main Street did. People's pension funds did. ETFs that hold Coinbase did. We did not have to do it this way. We could have done this in a more organized fashion. We could have done this without whacking Coinbase over the head, taking them by surprise by all accounts, and having the American public lose $1.7 billion effing dollars. That's I, 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 I actually disagree with you, Mark. I think that um, not to cause too much of an argument on here, 
But I think actually SEC is doing it the only way they know how. We can argue whether or not it's uh, the right or the wrong way. But they are coming, they've served their, as, as far as they're aware, they've served their world's notice. They haven't seen um, action on it. And so they've decided to go nuclear on it. What they are trying to do, clearly out of the field of their legal capabilities, because I don't know how they're going to mount two of these fights at the same time, is is target both of the big guys. And they're trying to do it yeah. because beyond the... They don't give a crap about them. It's not their not their problem about to worry about the the one billion lost from a you know a stock. It's it's more the fact that they're clearly it's clearly a political attack on all types of crypto exchanges. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's another announcement tomorrow morning. I wouldn't even be surprised if he's going for a home run and he's announcing every morning this week. Oh, well, I I, I agree with Rob. I, go ahead, Mark. No, I mean, listen. Um, I, I think, I, I, and and I and we do want people to voice differing opinions here. It should not, you know, be a, a, just a symphony of of agreeing. Um, and I and I'm not always right, but I have I have always felt that a consideration and, and a greater consideration should be given to preserving investor capital, right? And in in the case of Coinbase, yes, I understand they got the Wells notice and. You know, Coinbase has complained, I think rightly so, that the Wells Notice lacked the requisite or traditional particularity associated with a Wells Notice. And I've certainly seen plenty of them when I defended against these kind of enforcement actions as a lawyer. But this is a publicly reporting company. It's not like the SEC has not had the opportunity over the course of years to engage with Coinbase. If there's something in their in a registration statement for a public company seeking to go public or even seeking to register a subsequent class of securities once already public that the SEC has an issue with, you tell them. Yeah, just, you I, get I comment think, letters. There's a, there's an exchange. This is definitely – okay, so the SEC has been out there previous – obviously, the current chairman has been out there pushing the stuff before he became the chairman, which was hilarious. Um, you know, you've got into a scenario now where they've all been mixing their words about whether or not it's a security or not or whatever. There's not been clarity. I think the only way they actually now reverse that position is to introduce reasonable doubt and put that into a judicial process, which they can then legally clarify that, which they have done before, but now it's part of an enforcement action. This will be interesting because it's now a judge has to make a decision on whether or not they have actually breached regulations and they'll have to prove that they have, at which point we'll get a lot of clarity. Um, unfortunately, the political side of this is that they're quite clearly trying to attack the very shareholders that you want to pretend in order to make the whole proposition look less attractive. That's the political angle. 100%. Uh, and, and that's the problem here. You know, the mantra is uh, they're here to protect the investor. And what they've done over the course of the last 12 months, whether it's through, and I'll speak to crypto, with bankruptcies, uh, with the uh, machine gun filings of lawsuits against Binance and uh, Coinbase, is they've harmed investors. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned $1.6 billion out of the Coinbase market cap. $200 billion was a, uh, with the Binance lawsuit. Now, uh, to Mark's point, um, you know, Coinbase is more of a transparent target because of, of you know, them being a publicly traded company. Uh, but CZ's been in this space for a long time, and he garners a lot of trust from the community um, for not doing things uh, the wrong way. And he, they have self-proclaimed that they have more enforcement uh, people in compliance than anywhere, and they, they disclose 
you know, how many uh, uh, requests that they, they work with from law enforcement. The same with Kraken, just Powell has disclosed how much it costs them uh, to disclose. And the same with uh, Coinbase as well. You know, Coinbase put out a tweet earlier today, and I think it was a very telling little video tweet. And it said, uh, you know, the times we mentioned staking, which is one of the things that was brought up in the lawsuit recently, in their S1, 57 times. Times they met with the SEC in 2022 asking for guidance, 30. <clears throat> the amount of comprehensive crypto laws the SEC has passed uh, under Gensler's rule, zero. Um, you know, Gensler started out with a uh, shotgun spray, you know, spray and see who you can get. Um, and he's narrowed it down to what Rob said. He's gone nuclear at this point. Um, and, you know, a couple of things that, you know, one thing I want to remind people is just uh, before we went on, uh, the SEC filed to, res uh, to, re to freeze the assets of Binance US, which are US customers. Um, and if you read through that filing, it's an interesting note. It's not to, it's not to freeze the assets of the exchange Binance US. It's, it's to freeze all the cryptocurrency held in customer accounts as well. It's very ambiguous. Um, again, is this helping anybody? I, I pretty much don't think Absolutely it is. Absolutely, it is. helping, right? So the, the, SEC, yeah. the, the SEC is not charged. Rob, no. Rob, whoa, whoa, Before you go on, I will say no, because my assets were frozen in a bankruptcy, and I can tell you how much market loss I've had on a trading uh, basis since then. So I disagree. Hold yeah, on. no, I, I actually... To I the see. tune of a lot of money, no, no, Rob. Well, let's let's let Rob uh, get us. Let me get No, what I'd say is it's it is absolutely the right thing from the perspective of the SEC, not from us. I get for that for, from the general consumer. That's a very painful thing to go through. Remember the point here. They are trying to bounce a. They've really, really, really messed up how to regulate this. They have not got about this the right way. They've allowed this to go on for too long. Now they've got themselves into a position where they have to do a much, much stricter action. We can argue whether or not that's the right action to take or not. But from the perspective of the SEC, which is not charged actually to, if you think about it as an entity, it's charged to protect the US government's interests first, which primarily is tax, not the individual consumer. They, they pose as the individual consumer protection, but they're not there to do that. And if you are trying to inflict maximum damage on a cryptocurrency exchange that you think is threatening the US dollar, and he specifically mentioned currency today, that we do not need any more currencies, which is a direct attack against these cryptocurrencies, and therefore the exchanges that they, they're exchanged on, then the SEC is absolutely doing the right thing for their purpose, which is this is it. They now consider this a completely unregulated market. They need to regulate it. And they're going to harm. I agree with you on that. I, Alex, Rob, I, I love you guys. I want to be respectful of the pathway to our audience that happens to be here for B3. Thanks for joining Rob Nelson, Alex Massioli, Mark Lapresti, and John Nigerian with another great episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain twice a week on Revolution Radio. Whether you're new to the world of Web3 finance or an experienced investor, we've got you covered. Follow us on Twitter at GetRevRadio and visit our website at revolutionradio.io, helping you make smarter financial decisions. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.